DJ Grandpa's Crib is a podcast devoted to the projects of Kickstarter. It's our labor of love to the dreamers. Help us reach more people by liking our Facebook page. Search words, DJ Grandpa's Crib. That's it, just like our page. Welcome to DJ Grandpa's Crib, the podcast of Kickstarter, the crowdfunding website. Each week I interview real people with honest dreams. Today is Wednesday, May 22nd, 2013. We're making fresh history today, sharing our first ever Crib Special Edition. A few weeks ago, I spoke with Tom Monteleone, a prolific writer and the owner of a unique publishing company called Borderlands Press. Tom and his buddies, his cohorts, Neil Gaiman, F. Paul Wilson, Pierce Waters, with the help of Alan Moore, have a Kickstarter project up right now. It's called The Hogbends Chronicles by Henry Cutner. I learned pretty quickly that Tom Monteleone is a master storyteller, much like Henry Cutner himself, with many, many stories to tell. I'm going to let Neil Gaiman narrate the podcast in his own words from their Kickstarter video. Let's give a listen. Hello, I'm Neil Gaiman, and I've written an introduction to a book that I want to tell you about. It's a book by Henry Cutner. DJ Grandpa to Mountain Lion. DJ Grandpa to Mountain Lion. Mountain Lion, come in. DJ Grandpa. Hello, this is Tom. Hello, Tom. DJ Grandpa here. Oh, how you doing? Very good to hear you. Uh, you too, sir. Let's make sure I have a pronouncer on your last name, sir. It's very easy. Just think of like an Italian opera or something. Monteleone. <laughs> Monteleone, okay. Monteleone. Oh, kind of like it's, it's, a, it's it means, the godfather or something. Exactly. It means, it means mountain lioness. Monte is mountain, Leone is lion. Oh, okay. I got you, I got you. Yeah. A lot of Italians mean something. And you're the publisher of Borderland Press? Borderlands. Yeah, Borderlands Press. My wife and I started it about 21 years ago. And we basically are catering to very small niche audience, really. There are people who collect signed limited editions of books by well-known authors. We're kind of like the old Franklin Mint of books. We'll do like 350 copies of a novel, say like Stephen King or Peter Stroud did for a New York publisher in a trade edition, you know, that you go in the bookstore and buy. But ours will be a very small edition bound in leather or, you know, fancy cloth or silk or something with a signature page and it says this book is limited to 350 copies and it's signed by the author. Boom, you know, it has a number. Numbered one to specialties. Yeah, you know, book collectors, very small, you know, audience of people who want to spend that kind of money for a collectible book. But it's just like people who buy artwork, you know, or buy prints or things like that. And so that's why it works so well for you joining the Kickstarter community because Kickstarter is everything, you know, limited edition. Well, we had never tried Kickstarter before. Right. I've been a writer myself for thirty-five years. I know most of the writers in the business that are in, in most of the genres. You meet them over the years. So I was able to get lots of pretty well-known writers who have an audience that wants to collect them. Right. And on our website, you can see we've published quite a few things over the years. We did a limited edition. God, it's got to be 15 years ago now. Right. If you're a Star Trek fan, you got to know that this one. It was the script 
that had Joan Collins in it, where oh, they yeah, go back yeah, in yeah, time. Yeah, 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 something for, she, forever. Yeah, something forever. Yeah. It was called The City on the Edge of Forever. Yeah, yeah, that's it. And the writer was named as Harlan Ellison. And mm-hmm. back then, in the 80s and 90s, he was a good buddy of mine. And he wanted to do the original script, because the show that Roddenberry produced was not the script that Harlan originally turned in. Oh. They had changed it. Right. So he wanted to preserve the original script, so he did that. And he got all the actors on the original cast, they had all said that that was one of their favorite episodes. So he got all the people in the cast to do an afterward for the book. So each yeah. one of them did an afterward. Everybody except Shatner. Shatner said he wouldn't do it. <laughs> yeah, well. But everybody else, everybody else did. Right. So we were collecting the whole thing together. We did a limited edition of it, and Harlan signed it, and some of the actors signed it. It, was, it did very well. But just an anecdote, this is back before they had email, and we were in the East Coast, and we were getting all the afterwards were getting faxed to us from the cast members out in California. So, you know, Harlan was supposedly coordinating that. He was calling them all and, you know, giving them our phone numbers and everything so they could get this, this stuff faxed. It was a Sunday night when my wife and I were in the kitchen and we had there were people over, relatives or something, I can't remember. But, you know, we're typical Italian kitchen. Everybody's talking at the same time. Everybody's trying to do stuff at the same time. It was really noisy. We're trying to get the pasta and the salads and everything ready. Right, I was thinking it was noisy. And the phone rings, right? And my wife answers the phone and she says, it's for you. And I was getting frustrated. I was getting in argument with somebody. And I turned and I said, well, what the hell is it? Who's calling on a Sunday night? Who the what? Because I feel like talking on the phone, right? Yeah. I said, who the hell is that? And my wife puts her hand over the phone and she says, it's Mr. Spock. <laughs> 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 he had our fax number. He had inverted a couple of numbers. And he kept trying to fax his afterward. And it was, you know, yeah. kept getting bounced. So he finally called Harlan and says, give me Tom's number. I got to find out, you know, I'm doing something wrong here. <laughs> Everybody in the room is like, they were shocked. You know what I mean? That it sounds like something shocked. that would happen to me. I'd be like, who that, what the hell? <laughs> and, yeah, and I'm sure he heard me. You know what I mean? Henry Cutler was one of the most brilliant science fiction and fantasy writers of his generation, which was quite a while ago now. He died much too early, age 43. Why don't you tell me a little bit about Henry Cutner. Henry Cutner, he only wrote five stories in this series, you know, called The Hog. And he actually started writing in the late 30s, all through the 40s and 50s. He was what they used to call a pulp writer. This is back before there was TV, and people used to read a lot of fiction magazines. They were called right. pulps. And there were literally hundreds of them being published every month and on the newsstands. And they were called pulps because the paper was so cheap. That after a couple of months, it would start to self-destruct. But <laughs> the magazines were incredibly popular. I mean, they were, this is where a lot of the uh, famous detectives got started. You know, the Saint and Mickey uh, right. Spillane's characters, Mike Hammer. Henry Cutner wrote mostly science fiction and fantasy. He wrote for the pulps because, you know, he could. It was a ready-made market. He had editors who loved him. And he would write maybe three or four stories in some magazines and use various pseudonyms, you know, so that the table of contents didn't look like it was all Henry Cutner. The stories were adapted to films and 
over the years, I think that you know he gained a, a reputation of being a great writer. How did Kuttner die? He had an aneurysm. He died in, in his sleep when he was in his 40s. So his career was cut short right around 1960 or so. He was a very talented guy, and he was at the top of his game when he died. And Tell me about the Hogbin stories. It's a collection of stories about a family that is utterly unique. I mean, there's nothing like it in the whole genre of strange, weird fantasy or that I've ever read. I mean, it, it, he makes the reader work to figure out what's going on. The narrator is this guy named Salk, S-A-U-N-K. He's probably the most normal one of the bunch because he has a, he kind of has this narrator's voice. He's like a bridge to the human population. But one of the people is known as Junior, and Junior is still forming, and he lives in a tank where he's being processed. And they haven't let him out of his tank yet, right? So you don't know what Junior might be. You have these visions of this big, amorphous, shapeless blob of protoplasm that's still forming. (laughs) These these images. He, He makes the reader create images that were far more bizarre in your imagination than you could ever put on the page. And he just does it by the power of suggestion. And it's, they're wonderful. If you like them, they captivate you. And you wish that he had written more of them before he died. Why a book on Henry Kuttner now? He wrote a series of stories that were just so odd and so distinctly strange that a lot of people didn't know what to make of them, and they would usually appear in an anthology or a collection of his work. It would just be there, sitting there. It had no introduction. It had no no setup. Right. There were stories about this odd family called the Hogbens. Right. They kind of lived in this kind of Appalachian setting, and at first glance, at first reading, they sound like just an odd bunch of hillbillies, but he would drop in a little odd sentences or suggestive uh, phrases, which the more you read the story, the more you realize that this family was not, they weren't hillbillies, they weren't even, they probably weren't even human. They were some sort of <laughs> weird mutant strain. Either they they were from a, an alternate dimension or they were they're aliens or they were mutant humans, but you never find out where they come from. You mm-hmm. never find out who they are. It's kind of a phenomenological thing. They simply are. Right. And you read these stories and you either accept them for what they are or you don't. And people who read these stories have one of two reactions. They either love them because they're so fascinating, so unique. They're very original. There's nothing else like them. They either love them or hate them. There's nothing in between. And look, I think most of us would settle for that. I think it's better to be memorable for something wonderful or something awful than to be just totally forgotten. Yeah. The thing about these stories, they had appeared in the pulps, and they were very difficult to find and to collect. As a matter of fact, the very first one he wrote, it was called The Old Army Game. That story appeared in a, a magazine called Thrilling Wonder Adventures in 1941. And Thrilling Wonder Adventures Either it wasn't thrilling, or there wasn't a whole lot of wonder, or maybe not enough adventure, but it only lasted like nine issues. Gotcha. And it didn't have a large printing, because it was just getting introduced into the newsstands, and 
you know, a magazine had to get its legs. It had to get an audience before they would print more and more copies of it. Right. For some reason, this magazine did not launch. It didn't catch on. And it vanished. And, well, what is it now, 40, 60, 70 years, nobody could find a copy of that Henry Cutner story. And one of the editors, Paul Wilson, who's a really good writer on his own, he spent three or four years trying to track down a copy of the magazine. He never did. He did find a collector living, I forget where, some you know, state in the Midwest, who wrote him and said, I have a copy of the magazine, but it's so rare, I'm not going to let it out of my collection, but I'll make you a photocopy of the story, and I'll send it to you, which is what this fan collector did. Apparently, he was using a photocopy machine from the 1970s or something, because the, the quality of the copy that uh, Paul Wilson received was... I mean, it would have been clearer if it was carved on stone tablets or something. Yeah, I remember those machines. Oh, my God. It was just awful. Yeah, they were And, of course, it was being copied from a, a magazine that was 70 years old, and the quality of that paper was very brittle. And so you had to take it to, like, the FBI or something. It was, yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it was a very fragile copy of the story, so he, he had to retype it. He typed it into, you know, a digital format. Right. We took this project to a lot of our regular publishing outlets, you know, because we're, we're all published writers, the editors and myself. And right. Neil Gaiman, of course, he did a really famous comic called The Sandman. And I mean, I've known Neil about 20 years, and we met at a comic convention. Ah, oh, that's how you got him on the book, because my editor, Vaughn, she was like, how did they get him? We were all at a convention together, Paul Wilson, myself, and Neil. We were at a convention like last year. Uh, it was a writer's con- horror writer's convention in San Diego. And we were sitting around the bar talking about old writers and stories that we really liked. And he happened to mention that he fell in love with the Hogmans. He had read the Hogmans when he was probably 14. Right. And I said, yeah, I read them when I was about 16 in an anthology. And we all realized that we had all had this odd connection to these stories. And Neil said, well, we ought to try and collect them together and get them published. I mean, they really should be published. And we pitched it to all our editors and publishers in New York, and the problem was the book wasn't big enough. The book was only like 120 pages. Right. And that's not the normal length of, you know, most stuff that's published out in New York. You know, they want a book of some substance, because it costs money to get this book into production. So you want to be able to put a price tag on it that's going to get you a reasonable return on it. Plus, we had to track down Cutner's estate. Uh, we're putting this book together with the full permission of the Cutner estate, making sure that his heirs um, see the money from it. Now, how long has this whole process of getting all the information together, tracking down his relatives and all that? The tracking down the estate took about a year. Paul Wilson had been on just a personal quest to find that original story. So he had been doing that before we even oh, decided to do this. A life quest is something like yeah, he just was curious. He was wanting to find out if he could do it. Right. And so it all kind of came together when we were at this. We were in San Diego last fall, and we were at this convention, and that's when we said, "Let's give this a shot." So we did find the agent who was representing the Cutner Estate, and because we knew there had to be something going on, because there was a film about three or four years back. Right. It was called The Last Mimsy. That was based on a story that Cutner had published in the 40s called And Mimsy Were the Borregos. And it was about 
couple of kids who find this alternate dimension. So we knew that there had to be somebody still around because they gave permission to make that film. So we tracked down the right agent and the agency contacted, I think, Cutner's daughter or granddaughter, something like that. Yeah, she gave us permission. So the largest royalty in the, out of the whole thing where we're slicing the pie up is going to go to the, the to the Cutner estate. Right. And, you know, all the other participants are getting significantly less. So we feel good about that. And we just don't know if there's enough interest to support this thing. We couldn't get a New York publisher to do it. So, and we, <laughs> Borderlands Press, we were frankly afraid to just back the thing because we didn't know <laughs> if it would be a bomb or not. So Neil said, well, that's what Kickstarter's for. It's for projects that, you know, you can't fund yourself. And so we decided we'd give it a shot. And here we are. In your opinion, what has been the response of the Kickstarter community to the Hogbin stories? You know, we got a big bump when we first announced it. You know, people were going to the site, and Neil, Neil put it on his Twitter, and believe it or not, this guy has 1.8 million followers on Twitter. Wow, so this Neil guy is famous then. It's just incredible. So he mentioned it there, and a bunch of people went to the site. Right. And then we sent it out to our mailing list. We have almost 7,000 people that subscribe to our newsletter right. that are book collectors. So we sent it out to our customer list. That's all Wilson, he sent it to, that subscribed to his website newsletter. Because he's been doing a series called Repairman Jack for about 10 years. People that read his series, Repairman Jack, they, they want to get involved in anything Paul does. And Paul's one of the editors of the collection. Like a question about Borderlands. Sure. You have the Hogbin stories, and then you have these collectibles in this niche market. I mean, do you feel as though you'll ever run out of material, you know, people to anthologize like this? Yeah, we do worry about that because, you know, there's only a certain number of writers that are collectible. And oddly enough, they're mostly in, in the genres. They're either science fiction writers, they're horror writers, they're fantasy writers, right. some romantic suspense people, but mostly the genres. Uh, some mystery writers are very collectible. But that's pretty much it. It's a book of pretty peculiar stories indeed. These are the Hogman stories. Um, Cutler wrote all sorts of things. He wrote funny stories, weird stories, spooky stories. He wrote stories that have been filmed, uh, stories adapted for television. But even in the weirdness... That is Cutner at his best. The Hogman stories stand out as being particularly weird and having their own magical, strange kind of weird. Uh, it's a story of a family of very, very, very peculiar people. Um, a very strange family. They've influenced Alan Moore. They've influenced me. Uh, they've influenced a generation of people who read Henry Cutler, and now, with any luck, they're going to be out there influencing you. The Hogman stories. If anybody wants to see it, the Kickstarter, they, all they had to do is like type in Kickstarter and the word Hogbens in Google. It's H O G B E N S. You just do Kickstarter Hogbens, and it comes right up in Google. All right, dude. Well, you sound totally cool, man. So I hope that we get to do something together in the future, something like that. Oh, yeah. Keep me on your list. I'd love to hang out with you, man. 
I'm real impressed with, with the energy you have on this. This is going to be pretty cool stuff. It was a pleasure. Take it easy. All right. Goodbye. Bye-bye. That's it. The end of our show. I'd like to thank Mountain Lion for telling us so many great stories. Check out his website and his Kickstarter. We'll provide links at djgrandpa.com. He also has a new book coming out called Submerged. You can find it at cemeterydance.com. As always, thanks to the listeners. We couldn't do it without you guys. And a special thanks goes out to Trevor Williams, who provided the theme song to DJ Grandpa's Crip. And to my mentor, The Mumbler, who provided some very cool jazz. Thanks to Theron Kennedy, our director of marketing. Once again, make sure you like our Facebook page. That's really all we ask. Search words, DJ Grandpa's Crip. Until next week, so say we all. The homepage for DJ Grandpa's Crib is djgrandpa.com. You can follow us on Facebook and Twitter, DJ Grandpa's Crib, all one word. Please subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, which helps other people discover the show. And don't forget to leave a comment while you're there. Our producer is Von Rupert. The executive producer of this and all Bedrock Communications podcasts is AF Rufus.